Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the LSE for tonight's uh, event, a Department of Management public lecture. It's good to see a good number of you here, particularly because we're in the middle of the LSE exam period. Um, so students, many of our students have other things on their mind than learning about uh, robotics. My name is Edgar Whitley, and I'm an Associate Professor in Information Systems in the Department of Management here at LSE. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Leslie Wilcox and Professor Mary Lassity. Both are inspirations to me, both as friends as well as academic colleagues. Leslie is a Professor of Work, Technology, and Globalization in the Department of Management here at LSE. He's a leading global researcher on technology at work, cloud computing, IS human capabilities and skills, and IT business process outsourcing. He is a recipient of the PwC Michael Corbett Associates World Outsourcing Achievement Award. For the past 21 years, he's been editor-in-chief of the Journal of Information Technology, one of the leading journals in the field, and has published over 190 papers in journals including the Harvard Business Review and Sloan Management Review. He's co-author of at least 33 books, the latest of which, uh, so Service Automation, is the basis of tonight's talk, which he's co-authored with Mary Lassity. His research has been extensively used, having been cited as academically nearly 20,000 times, which is a phenomenal uh, approach. Mary Lassity is Curator's Professor of Information Systems at the University of Missouri in St. Louis and is a researcher in global sourcing of business and IT services. She's co-editor of the Palgrave Macmillan series Work Technology and Globalization and senior editor at MISQ Executive as well as on the editorial boards of a number of leading journals in the field. She has only co-authored, I think, 24 books to date, so still some way to catch up to uh, Leslie's productivity, and her own work has been cited again only 13,000 times. Uh, so a, a phenomenal uh, publication record from both of our speakers. They have an unprecedented access to organizations that are the early adopters of what they call robotic processing automation, and in their latest book, they capture a year's worth of learning about embedding these disruptive technologies into the modern workplace, seeing this as a blueprint for the future of other organizations moving forward. Tonight, they'll provide a balanced, academically informed, and compelling view of the many benefits as well as the practicalities of managing these kinds of future and technologies in the workplace. For those of you who are interested in learning more about the LSE's work in this area, you'll find links on the LSE robots hashtag. It's worth a look. For those people who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSE robots. I would ask you to please put your phones into silence so as not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded, and assuming that there are no technical problems that the robots can't fix, the podcast will be available with a bit of luck uh, shortly afterwards. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Leslie and Mary. There will also be a book signing uh, opportunity, and you can get copies, purchase copies of the book uh, outside. But for now, will you please join me in welcoming Professor Leslie Wilcox and Professor Mary Lassity to deliver their lecture. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Mary and I are delighted to talk about our book this evening with you, our Service Automation, Robots and the Future of the Work. Just to calibrate which one I am, uh, <laughs> the, uh, 
They commonly say that an American professor begins a presentation with a joke and uh, an English professor with an apology. <laughs> so my apologies, but I have no joke. <laughs> what we do have, however, is a, an agenda, which is, I have to admit, quite a mixed bag. There's academic nitpicking with some serious consequences, despite the uh, rhetoric about smart and intelligent machines, some examples of machines and people getting it wrong, some cold water on the idea that people will not matter in a highly technologized future, hard-won evidence on actual automation deployments in major companies, a brief review of the uh, impactful technologies, a skeptical view of the future prognoses and some projections of our own. A few words on the genesis of the book. <clears throat> and... Uh, We'll be talking about the cover right towards the end, just in case you're wondering what that cover represents. Uh, we started out in late 2014, and some of you in the room will remember uh, us uh, looking around for research sites, uh, with the limited ambition to research something called robotic process automation. We will report on that, that we soon got overtaken by a veritable blizzard of hype and fear. The automation and work debate that had featured several times already in the 20th century, usually in times of recession or very low economic growth, reignited throughout 2015. By last week, even the Financial Times was running a four-day special series on robots, friend or foe. This featured a now familiar litany of storylines, driverless cars, an AI writing program called Emma, Google's AlphaGo defeating a champion of the ancient game of Go, a string of technologies that can already do physical and cognitive tasks better than humans, the, the, uh, the news of a U.S. investment boom in artificial intelligence, together with commentaries from optimists and pessimists alike. As a result of this development, uh, our study is framed in this much bigger context and looks at a timeline from 2016 to 2025. Frankly, when you look at the bigger picture, it is not easy to kick your way through the media representations of the debate around automation, robots, and the future of work. Sources and multiple studies are very variable in quality and rigor, but they seem to polarize around two storylines. One tells us, and this is uh, the, le uh, the, the left-hand side here, down here was a, a representation of this storyline. One tells us it is largely going to be fine, and most of us are going to live in a well-run technological world. Let's call it automatopia, with more than enough goods, services, and leisure. Technology will create jobs and provide solutions to multiple problems. Here you can see a typical symbol for that, a service robot deployed in service or care settings. Usually we, hear, we see the one from Japan, which is solving elderly care problems and labor shortages, a country that has also been sporting the fully robotized Henna Show Hotel. More of that later. Meanwhile, the other vision is essentially dystopian on the right-hand side. <clears throat> Here in the bottom right-hand corner, the next installment of the Terminator film franchise, perhaps, Terminator 6, 
Some great titles here you will read. My personal favorites being Who Owns the Robots Rules the World and stunning, stunningly, Humans Roadkill on the Information Highway. There are many detailed sober studies, of course, such as by Richard and Daniel Suskins, The Future of the Professions, which they delivered on this very stage several months ago, and Martin Ford's The Rise of the Robots. These provide much detail on the tasks that could be automated in multiple sectors and across most occupations in the relatively near future. Our own work suggests a more nuanced and complex narrative than the headlines shouted us on a daily basis and less pessimistic conclusions than Ford and the Suskins arrive at. Our book also suggests a future shaped by human will and imagination and ability to absorb change as much as by any specific technology, however heavily invested in. I would make another point, especially about the more macro studies on the technology and future job numbers. Reading them has made us increasingly sceptical. The problem with nearly all the studies is that they are projections going forward with not necessarily good data sets, often carrying questionable, questionable, even tacit assumptions, and few make their methodology transparent. Even if you take the best of the studies, the limitations start to become clear quite quickly. So let's take one of the best of the studies, and you can begin to see what I mean. Frey and Osborne, 2013, uh, probably the most rigorous and admirable of the studies that uh, we will talk about today, uh, certainly one of the most quoted. And they're finding, uh, looking at 2010 data for 702 occupations in the USA, here they found, as this graph shows um, on its right side, that 47% of occupations were under high risk of being computerized. The figure for the UK in their later study is 35%. However, self-admittedly, the researchers do not try to specify the speed of technology developments, nor a time period for the loss of jobs. The best they come up with is perhaps over the next decade or two. Nor do they attempt to predict the actual number of jobs lost. Three further limitations we would point to, and remember this is one of the best studies. Firstly, the study, like many others in this area, does no analysis of jobs likely to be created by changes in work and technology. More of that later. Secondly, it focuses on jobs and occupations, but not on activities, nor the amount of work that needs to be done, which seems to be increasingly, increasing exponentially. More of that later. Secondly, uh, sorry, thirdly, the study largely factors out the key bottlenecks of how commercially feasible, viable, and organizationally adoptable the emerging technologies are, i.e., the long road to diffusion of innovation dilemma is ignored. But they do say, bring one thing to bear here that's very interesting. They talk about three engineering bottlenecks to computerization. The bottlenecks are written up there, and essentially they represent things that cannot be engineered uh, very easily, uh, that cannot be automated. And that looks quite a, a good go at actually 
bringing the human back into the picture here rather than this completely flawless automated future that we're all going to be uh, experiencing. But in our view, uh, these bottlenecks are understated and the three concepts are not adequate for fully describing the multiple valuable human qualities that will continue to apply at work. You can make your own list, but as a starter, think of leadership, adaptability, self-awareness, critical thinking, tacit knowing, conflict resolution, managing emotions, imagination, composite skill use, ethical judgment. I did this recently with a group of IT people, and we spent 40 minutes drawing up such a list. Jeff Colvin wrote a recent book called Humans Are Underrated, and Tom Davenport and Julia Kirby have a forthcoming one entitled Only Humans Need Apply, both a salutary reading on this subject. <clears throat> but I want to drive on a little bit down this point and really under reinforce why humans continue to matter in the next 10 years. And I'll do it by looking at, as almost an aside by Frey and Osborne in their book, and these things happen seemingly incidentally, but they reveal a great deal. Um, in their book, they, they, they quote, they make this quote, um, and it's about this particular graph. They say, consider an example of human bias. Danziger et al., 2011, demonstrate that experienced Israeli judges are substantially more generous in their rulings following a lunch break. It can be argued that many roles involving decision-making will benefit from impartial algorithmic solutions. So here you can see the data set. The data set is that uh, prisoners are being given parole more likely at the beginning of a session than at the end of the session. As they get to a break, a lunch break or something like that, the decisions get harsher and harsher and parole is not granted. Um, the notion being that as people get hungry, they get harsher in their judgments and possibly more irritable. That's the explanation that Danziger give. And it's also an explanation that Frey and Osborne accept without challenge. You know, there's only so much work you can do in analyzing other people's data. Now, game, set, and match. Um, well, not quite. Because we looked at this in detail, <clears throat> and we discovered a follow-up commentary by Wanshell, Margella, and Shepard, 2011, <clears throat> that came to very different explanations for this pattern. Their common sense told them to rerun the data and collect some more. The explanation did not seem right to them. They further interviewed three attorneys, a, panor, a parole panel judge, and five personnel at Israeli person, prison services and court management. They found out that case ordering is not random and that several factors contribute to the downward trend in prisoner success between meal breaks. Each session, it's found, they found, takes all the prisoners from one jail, and prisoners represented by attorneys go first, with unrepresented prisoners less likely to get parole going last. 
<laughs> Amongst those prisoners represented, attorneys tend to go first with the clients likely to win parole and put those less likely at the back of the queue. The case ordering and not judgment bias explain the data. Now, there are multiple implications which we will let you ruminate on, but I will mention only a couple. Ironically, of course, the particular evidence does not support Frey and Osborne's claim that human judgment may be better replaced by impartial algorithmic solutions. But even if it did, even if that's what the evidence showed, other studies show that in court and medical settings, humans still prefer to be judged by fellow humans rather than machines and prefer human expert advice and opinion even where that might be objectively inferior to that produced by a machine. Another point, statistics can only throw up correlations that have to be interpreted. Humans matter enormously in discovering all the data, how it can be interpreted, its meaning and its relevance and application. The testing process, experience, knowledge of context, common sense and insight that humans bring to data is hugely valuable in the face of increasingly unquestioning acceptance of statistical data, correlations, and the results from big data and business analytics. There is a danger without human involvement of automation and statistical complacency. More generally, yes, humans are fallible, but we should not presume the perfectibility of our machines and algorithms not least because they are created by humans. Moreover, we should recognize the value of what Igor Alexander, a professor at Imperial College in Artificial Intelligence, in his book, How to Build a Mind, 2000, refers to as the knowingness of humans, as exhibited in the second follow-up study I described. And you can contrast that to what we will call the fundamental unknowingness of our automation and computing technologies. In this respect, humans really do matter. Now, I'm going to be uh, a bit more light now because <clears throat> you all came here partly to discover whether you're going to be automated. And I've got to be honest, I have the same fear. When I thought about it, I realized that setting exams could be automated once you had built up a data set of questions. Marking could be, especially if it was multiple choice. My lectures could be automated, read out by a machine while a heliograph of me lectured. It was some relief that I turned to a website built on the Frey and Osborne study to discover what my chances of being automated were. Well, I was a happy man at the end of that. It turned out it was 3.2%. <laughs> <coughs> So uh, I point you to this website, uh, Pew indeed for me, uh, and I wish you good luck with whatever you find out about your jobs. <laughs> with that, I'm going to hand over oh. to, to Mary to okay. present in a completely different way. Okay, may I have the clicker, please? Um, the clicker might not yeah, work. Right here. Okay. If it doesn't work, I'll push it from here. Well, good evening, everybody. It is my great delight to be here, and I know everybody always says that, but I'm, if you indulge me, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my background so you know that I'm very sincere about 
being so blessed to be up here today. I was actually born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and I am the daughter of two school teachers, and I attended primarily public schools. And when I was growing up, I never, in my wildest imagination, would think I'd end up here at the London School of Economics lecturing to, to all of you. Why I'm up here is because the trajectory of my life completely changed in 1993 when I met two university professors from Oxford University, one of them being Leslie Wilcox and the other one being David Feeney, who is here tonight. I'm so glad that you're up here today, David. Now, you as an audience really benefit from the duo because we're very different presenters. So with Leslie, you got that Oxcam scholarly, erudite knowledge, and he's got the linty English accent, and it's just wonderful. And with me, you're going to get Jersey Street credibility. <laughs> so my job is to tell you about our data, let you know what we actually found in organizations, and I will be fully transparent, and whatever you ask, we will be able to tell you. So you're right, Leslie, you're going to have to drive for me. I'm used to computers falling over, Mary. <laughs> okay, thank you. So if you choose to purchase our book tonight, you're going to actually do that from two of my dear friends and also our book publishers, Steve Brooks and Stephanie Lester, who are also here with us tonight. And you'll see that the book is really based on two units of analysis. So on the one hand, Leslie and I asked the research question, how are businesses actually adopting this new breed of service automation technology? So that's one of our questions. And then at a more global level, what are the implications for global employment and the future of all of our work? Next slide, Les. Okay, so here's peeking under the hood at the data that we collected for the unit of analysis that has to do with businesses and how are businesses adopting this new breed of service technology. So we actually launched this research back in February of 2015 at the Outsourcing World Summit in America. And it's a great place to do a survey because we have a captive audience of buyers of business services. So we asked them in 2015 of February, how, where are you in your adoption of this new breed of service automation technologies? And in 2015, the levels of adoption were quite low. So Leslie and I decided we need to go look at early adopters, organizations who have already embraced this new breed of service automation technologies to understand what kind of outcomes are they getting, how is, is it affecting their employees, how is, is it affecting their customers. So we did, so far, 13 case studies, and you'll see some of the logos of the companies we have up there. We're going to tell you some stories from the Associated Press and exchanging in Telefonica 02 tonight. And there's two points I want to make about the sample of 16 case companies right now. One is you're going to notice that they are across industries. So this new breed of service automation technologies, they're not industry-specific. They're not process-specific. They're general purpose tools that are designed to automate a whole series of different business services. The second point about our, our survey, and I mean our case studies, is that the sample is completely biased. See, I told you I'd be honest. It's biased because we only studied success stories. So all of these companies have deployed this new breed of service automation technologies they're getting great business value delivered for their shareholders. Their employees actually embraced 
the technology instead of being intimidated and worried that it would take over their jobs. And it ended up with better customer services. So keep that in mind as we go through tonight about the companies um, getting great success from the way they chose to implement service automation. Okay, next slide, Leslie. Now, so far, I've used the term the new breed of service automation technology several times. So now I want to put some meat on that. What do we mean by that? So behind us is a service automation landscape. And the first point we want to make is we are talking about software. So even though you envision robots doing service work, we're really looking at software tools used to automate work that is presently being done by a human being. So these are software solutions. Operating in this space are literally hundreds of companies. And there's a big tower of Babel out there of the different terms you might have heard of, from cognitive intelligence, automation, um, auto, cognitive automation, robotic process automation. So we're going to try to map all of those tools and technologies onto one landscape. So we're going to put all of the tools that I'm going to talk about this realm first over here, all of the tools that are designed to automate services with these characteristics we're going to call robotic process automation. And these tools are designed for structured data, rules-based processes in the form of if-then-else statements, and have deterministic outcomes. So all of those tools have to do with robotic process automation. Now, those of you in the audience who should be thinking, haven't we been automating structured data, rules-based processes for, for 30, 40 years? What is different about the new breed? Well, we'll talk about some of the differences, but the main one is the ease of use. So it used to be that when we were automating services with these characteristics, we needed to go to an information technology department and have a whole team of IT professionals do the automation on behalf of the business. Now, with the new breed, they are so easy to use, you take people who understand the business process, and they don't program the software, they configure the software with a, a GUI drag-and-drop interface, and they are the ones now doing the automating. They don't have to go to their IT department. So ease of use is one of the distinguishing characteristics of the realm of robotic process automation. Okay, what a sexy term robotic process automation. And you're going to see a lot of providers cling their names onto that robotic process automation. But like any great term, it's been invented. And I'm very pleased to call out Pat Geary, who is in the front here. He's the, put your hand up, Pat. <laughs> okay, Pat Geary is the chief marketing officer for Blue Prism. He is the inventor of the term robotic process automation. So like many of his competitors and scholars alike, we stole the term because we loved it. So that is the realm of RPA. Now we're going to walk over here, which is more in probably what you're aware of in the popular media, the realm of cognitive automation. And here we're going to put all of the tools that are designed for data that is more unstructured, largely <clears throat> textual data, data that you communicate with these products through natural language interfaces, so either through voice or through typing, and they respond to you in a natural language, that the processes underneath are more inference-based rather than in the form of if-then-else rules, and the outcomes are largely probabilistic rather than deterministic. And the big uber machine in this space is IBM's Watson. 
And so we'll get a little bit more into the bellwether event of IBM's Watson winning Jeopardy, and then we'll tell you where we're seeing organizations in their cognitive automation deployments today. So we circled realm of RPA because of the 16 case studies that we've done so far, 14 of them adopted robotic process automation, and only two of them are starting to experiment with the more cognitive automation. And there's a good reason for that. RPA technologies are ready to go. Companies can go from zero deployment to implementation in a couple months. The upfront investment to deploy these tools is much lower than on the cognitive automation scale. So we're calling RPA today's technology, and we're calling cognitive automation more tomorrow's technology from um, a business perspective. Okay, next slide, please. The, we did, this is one, the reason why I wanted to put this uh, survey up here is I mentioned we did a survey in 2015 at the Outsourcing World Summit. One year later, we replicated the survey and the uptake of the adoption of RPA was astonishing to us. So I won't read all of this. I'll just tell you the adoption rates are in the blue, the maroon, and the green. So we saw a huge uptake in the adoption of RPA technologies in one year. Next slide. We asked the same group, where are you in your adoption of cognitive automation tools? And we still see quite low levels of adoption. So again, in the blue, the red, and the green, the levels of adoption are much lower. So it makes sense that we're going to talk a lot more tonight about RPA than cognitive automation. But before we focus on RPA, I want to bring you back five years ago. Okay. Can you believe that it's been five years since IBM's Watson won Jeopardy? I mean, I remember this day so well. It's February 14th. Those of you might associate that with Valentine's Day, but I associate it with my son's birthday since he was <laughs> born on February 14th. And I remember being glued to the television set. Is this going to be another deep blue that beat Gary Kasparov in 1998? And indeed, I want you to just realize what a tremendous accomplishment and bellwether event IBM's Jeopardy win was. So you see a picture up there, if, if you remember this, and we have Ken Jennings, the human Jeopardy champion, and Brad Rutter, the human Jeopardy champion. And keep in mind how culturally complex the natural language used in Jeopardy is. So I have an example of a question that Alex Trebek asked, and the question is, the category is literary category, cat, character, all points bulletin for $200, wanted for a 12-year crime spree of eating King Rothgar's warriors, Officer Beowulf has been assigned the case. Boom. In sub-second level, IBM's Watson comes back and has the correct answer, who is Grendel? Okay, so sub-second. Now let's think under the hood of IBM's Watson what's actually happening here. First, when the question gets asked, there might be up to 100 different natural language parsing algorithms going on to just interpret this question to begin with. Then Watson starts generating hypotheses what they think the answer could possibly, what it could possibly be, and it starts going against a database of 200 million text documents, all of the contents of Wikipedia, the Bible, literary works, movie databases, and starts weighting each piece of evidence until it comes up with four solutions and the probability that it thinks it's correct. So I want you to be amazed and awed by cognitive automation, but that story I just told you 
also means that when organizations adopt these more complex tools, it's a much bigger investment. So whereas RPA can be deployed in an organization in three months, we're seeing organizations who are adopting big cognitive automation tools taking a year, two years, three years, even more um, using cognitive automation. So it's a bigger investment, but the, but the applications are going to be wow. Okay, so the, um, I'll get, give you an example of businesses adopting some of these WOW technologies. So I know you can't read this, but it's a great story, so I'll explain it to you. So I know the government of Singapore has adopted a cognitive automation tool, and they wanted it to have a natural language interface with its citizens. And when the citizens had tax questions, they wanted it to be able to go to this website and have this personified human being answering in natural language. So I got all excited, and I got the URL, and so there's a, a lovely Jasmine, and um, an anthropomorphized version comes up, and she says, you know, hey, do you have a question? Ask me a question. So the green is me typing, saying, hi, Jasmine, what do you help customers with? And Jasmine answers back that she couldn't understand my question and that she can only answer individual income tax questions. Fair enough. So I asked her a real tax question. I bought a hybrid car. Are there any tax benefits? And she texted right back and said, I hope I've been of assistance. <laughs> okay. So, okay, there you go. So it takes a lot to train these. It has unpredictable outcomes on the cognitive automation scale because, again, we're talking about inference-based processes and probabilistic outcomes. I'm going to tell you one more story that you might have read in The Guardian, but I have a completely different take than The Guardian had. So are you familiar with Microsoft's Tay tweet? Okay, so you probably read some of this. So Microsoft wanted to show off one of its, uh, its machine learning algorithms, and this is un unassisted, so it was going to do it all by itself. And the goal of this was they wanted Tay to learn how to understand and communicate with millennials in the United States. And so millennials are people between the ages of 18 and 24. So Tay goes out, and Tay starts tweeting and retweeting and creating original tweets. I wanted to put some actual examples up here, but every time I did, Leslie says, you're going to get me fired from the LSC. <laughs> so I, I have the unembodied head, head here. So this became very, very, you know, in the media when Tay started tweeting racial slurs, anti-feminist jargon, using profanity, and Microsoft had to turn Tay off. And it was... At that, at the press did this as an indictment of machine learning. And I thought it was actually a brilliant example because it did exactly what it was supposed to do, <laughs> understand millennials in the United States. <laughs> to me, it was more of an indictment on our humans than our machine learning algorithms. So that's the story of Tay. Oh, you're going to change. Okay, so now that's more tomorrow's technology. So maybe in a couple years we'll come up here with 14 client adoption stories and be able to share those. Now we're going to switch over to robotic process automation. That's today's technology. We're seeing huge widespread adoption in businesses. And I want to tell you a little bit more about robotic process automation. So I mentioned that one characteristic of these tools is that they're so easy to use that business people can do the configuring of the software to automate a human task rather than having to go to an IT department. The way RPA works is it gets a logon ID and a password 
just like a human being does, and it's perfectly suited for those structured, the data, the structured data, rules-based processing tasks that a lot of humans do. So we tend to think of knowledge workers, and when you think of one, you think of one typically in a swivel chair, and they always have a computer in front of them. So much of our knowledge work is kind of swivel chair processes where we're getting you know, emails from customers, and then we're getting spreadsheets, and then we're doing some processes, we're paying invoices, we're processing claims, and that person is going and swiveling around because we've got all of these proliferation of systems in our organizations. So I like to think of all of these systems as bricks. They're very kind of fixed. And the human being as being the pliable grout, filling in all of the interfaces between the systems. That kind of work is boring, repetitive. And now we have RPA technology that can be doing that kind of boring work for them. So I'm going to give you a story of a typical example of how companies are choosing to deploy robotic process automation. And I'd like to now, oh, you went too fast, Leslie. Hmm? You, got, you went too fast. I'm back. Okay, you're back. They haven't met Sorry, Sorry Charlie yet. <laughs> so here's Sorry Charlie. He's an HR specialist, and he is in charge of recruiting and onboarding for his company. The recruiting part he loves. He gets to go talk to business people. He develops job descriptions. He figures, where am I going to market this? He likes to interview references. He likes to interview candidates. All of the parts of his job that require judgment, emotional intelligence, and human interaction. The boring part of Charlie's job is when he has to do the onboarding process. Do you know what it takes just to get an employee an office, security clearance, a parking pass, a Blackberry, a computer, got to get entered into the system so they get, get paid? All of that kind of swivel chair process gets done by the robotic process automation. And now, since Leslie ruined my joke, go less. Okay, so I'm a little guilty here, because keep in mind that robot is a piece of software. But I wanted to show you how Charlie has been transformed after automation. Isn't Charlie happier? Charlie's fitter? Charlie's better looking after RPA. <laughs> So that's, there's, a, there's an important message in there about how companies that we study are choosing to deploy automation. They're doing it to take the highly repetitive, boring work out of a human's job. It's not replacing a human being. It's replacing the boring, high-volume, repetitive tasks and liberating that human excess labor for other things. Next slide, please. Okay, so... Across the 14 of those studies that had deployed robotic process automation, this is the value that was delivered to the organization and to some of the other um, stakeholders. I've been studying business practices for almost three decades with Leslie, and I don't know how many times I've ever been able to say that there's a practice that results in the win-win-win, the win for shareholders, the win for customers, and the win for employees. And I can say that about robotic process automation because of the way the biased companies that we are studying chose to implement it. So I'm sure there's other ways to implement this, but if you want to get this triple win I'm talking about, you're going to want to follow some of the practices that our case companies did. So the win for shareholders, so let's, we're business people, so let's first talk about a return on investment. Across our 14 companies, the lowest one-year return on investment on their RPA 
implementation was 30%, and that's quite high if you're a business person. The highest one we found was a one-year return on investment of 350% one-year return on investment. If you're shaking your heads and you're a little skeptical, I'm going to share a story with you. So one of the people we interviewed for our book, he was the RPA champion. He had a couple of, a couple of these experiences under his belt. He has a new business case that has a triple-digit one-year return on investment, and he walks that and does the pitch to the chief financial officer. And the chief financial officer nods the head and, you know, very nice, very nice, doesn't seem to get very enthusiastic. So the RPA champion goes back to his desk. Next thing you know, there's a knock at the door. Opens up the door. Hi, I'm an intern. I work for the chief financial officer. I understand you need a little help learning how to calculate a rate of return on investment. <laughs> Nobody believed him. So the RPA champion said, going forward, he only ever said 50% return on investment so that people would have credibility in it. So the rate of return on investment for the shareholder of the organization is very high. The other good, another example of a good business value is compliance. So a lot of people might think, you know, you've got all of these software robots running around, what happens to compliance? In the companies that we studied, compliance actually went up because you can figure the software robots to follow all of the rules and regulations of your industry. And when you're doing high volumes, it's going to do exactly how you configured it. When human beings are doing it, they get bored, they get tired, they might take shortcuts. So we found that compliance actually went up. Okay, now let's move to the customer value. So your external customers. Some of the services that get automated increased service quality and certainly speed of delivery. So one of the companies in our study was Telefonica 02. They're actually quite an early adopter of robotic process automation. They adopted back in 2010. You might not remember this, it's been so long ago, but prior to RPA, if you bought a phone from O2, it would take a couple days for your phone to get activated because in the back office there were human beings helping to fill in some of the processes. They're doing credit checks on you. They're doing SIM swaps. You can use your old telephone number. And it took a while to get the phone activated. After RPA, we're talking less than 20 minutes. The other magical benefit to the customers is you were no longer calling the help center saying, when are you going to activate my phone? So they had 80% fewer calls to the help desk, also unexpected after RPA. So that's an example of the value delivered to customers. To us, I think the big surprise was really employees, because when you start to study automation, you immediately think that people are going to be afraid of automation. And the way our companies that we studied chose to implement RPA, how they chose to do it, was they promised all of their employees, we are not going to lay off anybody as a consequence of automation. We're going to redesign your work and liberate you to focus on more value-added tasks that require emotional intelligence and human interactions. And in some, a lot of these organizations are growing. And they knew the tsunami of more volume of work was coming in, and the organizations were not allowed to hire that proportional amount of headcount. So preparing for this onslaught of, of volume growth was another reason that RPA was being used to help. We'll, we'll give all of the boring work to the robots, and the rest of us are going to be working more on customer service. In the few instances of the companies that were looking to downsize, they did not lay off their internal employees. They either waited for natural attrition, or they, um, they, some cases, when we're talking about hundreds of savings in FTEs, they took it out of their service provider relationships 
because that's more uh, politically acceptable than your own employees. So once you tell employees that you are not going to be, um, you know, you're not going to lose your job as a consequence of automation. In fact, it's going to be enriched because you're going to be doing different things. Some of employees are actually going to go onto these RPA teams and start working on new technologies that we saw examples of employees really embracing RPA. And we're going to share a couple stories. Oh, I forgot. Go back once, Les. Okay. I always like to credit everybody. My favorite soundbite from our research is RPA takes the robot out of the human. So you can think about, instead of being scared of automation, that the way companies chose to do it, it took the robot out of the human. And here tonight is the author of that brilliant statement, ta-da, my co-author. <laughs> so he'll say we, we came up with it, but that's really from Leslie's brilliant brain. I love that soundbite, take the robot out of the human. Okay, next. Okay, right. My media consultant, Peter Light, is here. And I said to him last night at dinner, this is a long, long lecture. How do you, how do you keep people awake? And he said, Harold Pinter, dramatic pauses. <laughs> so did that work? That's my Harold Pinter, dramatic pause. <laughs> Okay, so story time. I'm going to tell you a story that will show you an example of the win-win-win. So we're going to talk about the Associated Press. So what do they do? What do you know them as? This is the part where you participate because you're falling asleep. <laughs> what do we know the Associated Press as? Yes, journalists, news organizations. And it, the, you might be surprised to know that they're a nonprofit organization, which I didn't know. And they're based in New York City. But nonprofit does not mean you're allowed to be losing millions and millions of dollars a year. And that's what was happening at the Associated Press. So they get a new CEO. Now we got a transformation agenda. And the agenda becomes we have to cover more news at a lower cost and protect our brand. More news, lower cost, protect our brand. How are we going to do that? So Lou Ferrara is a vice president, and he's in charge of sports news and business news. And he's in New York thinking, how am I going to meet this agenda? His team of journalists, by the way, are in a union. Okay, so he's got that complication. And he used it as an opportunity to look at his workforce and say, what do my journalists really like to do? My journalists like when I send them to Yankee Stadium to cover a baseball game. My journalists like when I send them down to interview a chief executive officer at a, at a large company. What do they hate to do? Leslie, you're not driving this properly. Okay. <laughs> okay. What they hate to do is corporate earnings reports because the journalists would get handed that structured data. Okay. So, I mean, doesn't that look horrible? And then creating the corporate earnings reports requires no creativity. Now you may press the next button to create a little story that looks like this. So he decides that he's going to automate corporate earnings reports. So when there was only the journalists, the human journalists doing this work, he only had enough excess staff to cover 300 companies each quarter. And after automation, they now cover 4,700 companies. So you see a huge, more than 10 times increase in the amount of news covered. You can now cover Canada, smaller cap firms. His journalists are delighted not to have to do these reports anymore. 
So Leslie and I did this presentation at the Outsourcing World Summit this year. There was 810 people in the audience. And afterwards, a woman ran up to me and she said, oh, my God, I was a journalist. I used to have to do those corporate earnings reports. She goes, I I I'm so glad they don't do this anymore. And I thought, can you come on the road with us? Because wouldn't she be great credibility for our, our story? Then they went next to cover college news, which they hadn't covered before. So again, the use of automation to do more with fewer people and liberating your human labor force to do more interesting work. Now Leslie's going to tell you a story of one of his case studies that he did. Go ahead, Les. Oh, all right. Um, London insurance market, just uh, down the road, exchanging decided to adopt robots robotic process automation. Um, so I'm taking here a, a typical process within the London insurance market. It's London premium advice notes. Essentially, uh, insurance brokers, of which there are several hundred, have to produce these, and they have to end up in the London insurance repository as a piece of insurance business written on behalf of a, a client and the broker. So uh, exchanging is the service provider that manages that process. And the person that uh, I talked to here about the robotization of this process was, is called Amanda Barnes, and she talked me through the whole thing and her role in this. And uh, the process is pretty clear, which you see up there. You submit the, the London Premium Advice Note. Um, it has to be structured by someone like Amanda. Uh, she then finds errors, deals with exceptions. She might have to go back to the original uh, broker, um, the, she then adds more data from the systems of record in, within exchanging in the London insurance market. Uh, she creates the official LPAN, and then that gets uh, added to the London insurance market repository, and the broker finally gets his or her money. And clearly, the broker likes that to be done quite quickly because they like to see their money quite quickly. So the robotic process automation uh, involved uh, her being uh, downloading, really, all, many hundreds of the decisions that she made and the, many, uh, the tasks that she carried out uh, configured into the software. The software then was run with the data, structured data, uh, that was in input into, the, into this, the process, and she corrected it when there were lots and lots of exceptions until eventually the, uh, the piece of software could do this virtually 100% correctly. Um, so the bits that are um, in uh, the white there are the bits that now Amanda still does. The bits in pink are now totally automated. So there is human involvement, uh, dealing with exceptions. Uh, the RPA doesn't structure the data. She has to structure it at the front end. But the rest of it is totally automated. The result, that you used to be able to uh, process 500 LPANs in two days. Now they, promote, uh, they process 500 LPANs in 30 minutes. That's an incredible uh, difference. So that's the basic story. Why Poppy? This is an interesting aside, and there's a whole semiotics paper to be written on this, which I'm busy doing. But uh, I'll just put this one. Um, I, uh, she anthropomorphized the software. She first of all gave it a physical shape, and then she called it Poppy. 
It was because she thought of the naming on a Remembrance Day. Of, I forget which year it was, but it was in a November. And, uh, and she says, I said, well, why do you humanize the robot? She said, well, you've got to understand that it's me. It's partly me. If, you know, 400 things that I used to do are now done by the robot. And I see it as a, an enthusiastic trainee, a junior trainee. And, and, and you know, I, I do actually talk to the robot. And, the, and I'm sure we've all done this ourselves with different things. But, and that's interesting because at Exchanging, they now have 14 named robots. In fact, they had a competition the other, the other year um, to find out which was the best name, and Poppy, Poppy won that competition. So uh, some interesting developments there. So am I back to you now? Uh, okay, yeah. sure. So we told you... We, we haven't you, rehearsed this. <laughs> so we gave you two little examples, one of the Associated Press and, and one of Poppy at Exchanging, but we do want to make it the point that this can scale. So the earliest adopters in our study, Telefonica 02 and a utility company, when we did our interviews in 2015, had 300 robots running. That is 300 software um, licenses running. And they're running millions of transactions through this software per month. So this can actually scale. I'm just going to give you one statistic that really kind of blew my mind about this. At the utility company, they have two human beings managing 300 software robots doing the work of 600 people. And when you think about that, when 600 people were doing the work, do you need more than two supervisors? So the knock-on effects and the consequences for the future of work you can see are coming. Now, these companies are also getting a tremendous number of savings, labor savings, and take, again, most of them are taking the labor away from their business process outsourcing provider. And I want to give some credit to Telefonica O2 because they're smart enough to realize you could damage your relationship with your service provider when you take and reduce the size of your account so much. So they made up for the headcount by giving them additional work. So it takes a lot of management to make sure you can get the win-win-win. It's certainly not automatic. Okay, now we won't bore you with any of these, but if you're business people in the audience, our book, I keep having purposely told you the way the organizations we chose, that we study how they chose to implement automation to get the win-win-win, we have in our book the practices that led to that win-win-win. So we won't go through them here today, but I just want you to be aware of these are not automatic. You have to action the right practices and principles in order to get the kinds of outcomes that we saw in our case companies. Okay, so I'm going to summarize the business unit of analysis before we move on to the global level, looking at the kind of the surprises of what we did not find in our research. So myth number one, RPA is only used to replace humans with technology leading to layoffs. Again, in our 14 RPA adoptions, none of that happened. Business operations staff feel threatened by robotic process automation. We just saw the example of Amanda, and that was very indicative of many of the employees that we interviewed during the course of our research. Because the organization said, we're going to use this to liberate you from dreary work so you can focus on more value-added work, employees embrace this technology rather than rejecting it. Another myth, RPA will bring many jobs back from offshore. 
So in some of the larger installations where they're taking the relationships out of their service providers of work that might be done by a lot of human beings in the Philippines or in India, even though the processes were reshored to the United States or to the United Kingdom, it didn't bring a lot more jobs back, even though the processes were brought back. So I gave you the example of it only took two human beings doing the work of 600 full-time equivalents. So it doesn't bring a lot of jobs back, even though you might be bringing processes back. RPA is only driven by cost savings. We saw a much richer value proposition in higher compliance, higher service quality, faster services, employee job satisfaction increasing. So it's a very rich value proposition if you choose to implement using the practices we talk about. And finally, RPA does not replace an entire person's job. It only replaces the boring, rote, high repetitive, structured, if-then-else activities in their job. Okay, so that's it for our business unit of analysis. And now let's ruminate a little bit more on what does this mean for global employment and the future of work. So now I want you to think, we can go to the next slide. I want you to think, what are your own thoughts when you think about you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now with all this automation and cognitive automation coming? What are you thinking? Are you thinking that we're going to you know, have better lives? We're going to be more Parisian. We're going to make more love. We're going to drink more wine and eat more cheese. Are you an optimist? <laughs> or are you a pessimist and think, oh my god, my adult children are never going to get a job and leave my house? So we all tend to have these sort of philosophical assumptions about what technology is going to cause to employment and the future of work. So what I just wanted to point out and make us feel a little bit better is these anxieties and both uh, the anxieties of technology being bad and the hopeful optimistic that it's going to make our lives better have been around for a very long time. So behind me, I just put some quotes up. I have a positive, uh, a positive quote from Leibniz back in the 1600s that said, we should be using technology again to liberate us from dreary work. We have maybe a little bit of a pessimistic view on the role of um, technology on unemployment from John Maynard Keynes back in 1933 saying we're going to have a lot of technology-caused unemployment, all the way to the relativist position saying we're really in charge of deciding how we use technology, and technology is a very dangerous master but a very good servant. So with that, I'm going to let Leslie go handle the rest of the presentation. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Mary. Um, the best is yet to come. Will this time be different? Um, we've seen many different stages of, of, of uh, development with technology being changing over the course of these changing economies. I, I want to really get to the macro level uh, and make some projections forward using some of the studies the better cherry pick a bit here, and uh, then make uh, at least eight, I think, of our own projections from our book. One interesting uh, way of looking at the future is suggested by the McKinsey Global Institute. Chewy et al. produced this uh, graph, which picks up uh, an interesting point of key interest uh, is not jobs. That's been a sort of uh, mistaken focus, really but the percentage of the job or activity that is automatable. Um, we highlight examples uh, of their study here, which I know you can't understand the, the graph, but basically what it's saying is that if you take file clerks, uh, 80 to 100% of a file, file clerk's work is automatable in the near future. 
If you take a landscaping and groundkeeping work, 25% of that uh, is, is automatable in the future. And even if you take a, a CEO's work, uh, it's potentially 20% or more of a CEO's work is automatable in the near future. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it, where these, these as, aspects of jobs will be automated. Um, McKinsey, for example, suggests about 73% of the work done by staff preparing and serving food in restaurants, that's 3 million people in the USA, could be done by robots. Um, but will 73% of those people really be replaced? Uh, again, you need to think of the human service dimension here. For example, that robotized Japanese hotel I mentioned. My sense was that as a guest, it would be a very lonely place after about an hour or two. Um, moving on, um, we, we sort of see life in, in this way, really, uh, which is that we have these new technologies on board, more about exactly what those technologies are, and they are actually creating opportunities and threats, and both the opportunities and threats can result in more or less human work, depending on how these things play out uh, at different speeds and how they combine. So there may well be opportunities for more work in terms of uh, new data requiring new data uh, analysts, new services requiring new jobs, new combination uh, of uh, of skills and, uh, and uh, jobs which uh, can create jobs in that way. And even the threats may be a source of, of new, new jobs. Um, one interesting aspect to that is the cybersecurity development. Um, let me just uh, pick out that aspect. I mean, the, what is interesting about cybersecurity is that it's both um, a solution uh, to, to problems, but also um, the technology created the problem in the first place. And that might well be a, a future source of job gain. Uh, uh, if you look at integration risks, uh, the thing that going forward is that a lot, of the, a lot of the technology and the ability to integrate it, including the robotics, um, is, is not that high. The ability to integrate is not that high. We suspect an awful lot of jobs being created unanticipated in it feels like that. Uh, compliance risks, I'll talk in a little bit, bit um, about how that might actually create enormous number of future jobs. Um, and uh, the social risks may well reduce the number of jobs but may well increase them in certain ways. There are actually, and the other thing to realize is that, of course, all that plays out in a social, political, and economic, and environmental context. So it becomes quite difficult to predict um, precisely, although people try to, exactly how many jobs are going to be lost and how many jobs are going to be gained. There are many reports out quoting figures on automations and jobs. And they actually provide a very complex picture rather than a straightforward one of job displacement. Let me give you a flavor. For example, Deloitte 2016 sees automation taking over 114,000 jobs in the legal sector in the next 20 years. At the same time, it says the sector has actually grown 80,000 jobs in the last few years, 
while a Warwick University study says the legal sector will need 25,000 extra workers between 2015 and 2020. New mix of skills are predicted. McKinsey Global Institute is suggesting in the USA 60% of workers could have 30% or more of their jobs automated. 30% of US workers are in jobs where 50% or more of the work could be automated. On the other hand, less than 5% of jobs could be fully automated. Um, a macro study by Forrester Research 2015 suggests in the USA automation will displace 22.7 million jobs, i.e. 16% of the total workforce by 2025, but also create 13.6 million, uh, million i.e. 9% new jobs, meaning a net loss in the USA of 7% of jobs by 2025. So uh, the picture is a lot more complex than the headlines shouted us. Um, so I'm, we're going to move now to some projections. I'm going to give you just eight projections. We've got a lot more in our, our book. Um, the first point I want to make is that we are, studies we are seeing at the moment is merely the starting point. They are not to be accepted as definitive. No one in this theatre can predict even the Premier League soccer scores next Saturday, but many reports and pundits are making predictions about what is going to happen in the next 10 years <clears throat> with automation and the future of work using detailed, if imagined, scenarios and remarkably precise-looking numbers. Point two, there are many flawed assumptions running through these studies. They do not look at job creation. They assume the world of work and jobs stands still. They focus on jobs, not activities. They offer worst-case scenarios. They assume flawless robotic development. They do not allow for non-automatable human qualities. This is just a few that I would mention. However, point three, if robots are used on a mass scale for low-level tasks and then for more cognitive, non-routine work, fewer people will be needed in those work categories. Um, the FTE avoidance, redeployment, and job loss will hit those work categories. Fourthly, actually, most of them are not quite getting what, what they're really talking about. They don't really define exactly what they're talking about. I think what is interesting is the total technologies that are going to have massive impact. And we call that the SMAC raid effect. The dramatic effects will be from a number of technologies working in combination and not just from robotics and the automation of knowledge work. So the bigger picture is SMAC raid. You've heard it here first. Uh, you've heard of SMAC, social media, mobile technologies, um, analytics, big data, and cloud. But we're adding to that uh, the following, because that's an inadequate definition of the technologies that are going to be influential. So we add robotics, automation of knowledge work, which is what we've been studying, digital fabrication, and the Internet of Things. Fifth point, everyone's job, yours, mine, everyone's, will be transformed by at least 25% by automation by 2020. Sixth point, during 2016-2025, our best guess, all right, not to be stated as the LSE and University of Missouri professors stated that, <laughs> uh, 
Please, those of journalists in the audience. Our best guess is that for every 20 jobs lost, approximately 13 will be created. We worked that through a little in, in, at the organizational level, projecting within organizations what was going to happen, and that's the sort of figure that seemed to get corroborated. Point seven, human qualities will remain vital in the future of work. Empathy, social interaction, specialist knowledge, experience, tacit knowing, leadership, imagination, creativity, composite skills, multitasking, teaming, all these things are valuable in the future. Um, but um, let me move to what I think is a bit of a punchline, please, so the journalists can listen very carefully at this point. Um, uh, we think that all the studies fail to take into account three major additional sources of work creation. The first one of these is the exponential data explosion that we are experiencing. On some figures, 90% uh, of the world's digital data, uh, which we tried to process, was created in the last two years. 90% of the world's digital data was created in the last two years. And some people estimate that the amount of digital data grows by 50% a year. Now, I want you just to contemplate. I know it's difficult to get your brain around this idea and these figures, but how are we going to collect, process, analyze, and use that data? It implies a massive explosion of work, especially as data seems to create more data. Maybe we need more automation. We need more automation just to cope. The second point, the other source of work growth is the cross-sectoral explosion of audit, regulation, and bureaucracy. And this is very rarely talked about um, in these terms, in terms of automation and the future of work. <clears throat> um, these themselves are amplified by the data explosion and the application of modern information and communication technologies. It's a veritable witch's brew of data, technology, and bureaucracy. Only my LSE colleague, David Graeber, in his excellent book, The Utopia of Rules, has really seemed to have latched on to the importance of this development for the future of both work and the capitalist system itself. A third source of more work is technologies double-edged capacity to provide solutions that also create additional problems. I'll, I'll go back to the, what I think is a particularly good example, is how the Internet has created cybersecurity issues. The cost of cyber attacks, attacks has been estimated at $450 billion a year and is rising dramatically. This has led to further technology solutions, of course, with the cybersecurity market being $175 billion in 2015 and also growing much faster so far this year. More technology is the all-too-often-touted answer to our personal, social, and business problems. But then we find ourselves on an endless treadmill of technological solutions and the new problems they also generate. So let's bring us to a conclusion. We need some signs. Let's go back to the beginning, the cover of our book, a tremendous painting by George de Chirico, 1925, called The Great Automaton, Automaton uh, The Great Machine, translated from the El Gran Automata. 
It's uh, like all great paintings, it's a, it's a representation. But what is this painting a representation, a sign of? Well, historically, de Chirico had little time for futurism, a 1909-born macho creed that reads as a hymn of him to struggle, technology, speed, and progress. The painting represents metaphorically a possible future scenario that would see people eliminated by machines or so developed in their faculties by an infinity of physical, mechanical, and digital metamorphoses as to be recognizable as human in form only. The person trapped in or becomes the machine. Uh, is this how we are now feeling? Is this a sign of the times? If not, then it is certainly a warning. But maybe we need a more contemporary, easier to understand global warning sign. I think we have found it. We found it in a Swedish road sign. <laughs> the triangular shape indicates it's a warning, but not a prohibition. Presumably, it's a warning to drivers to look out for people using their mobiles while crossing the road. But there is an ambivalence in that it could be interpreted. Maybe it's a Swedish ambivalence, I don't know. There is an ambivalence in that it could be interpreted as a warning to mobile users not to look at their mobiles while crossing the road, or indeed while wandering anywhere near a road. That's pretty much where we all are. We have the technology, we are busy using it, and we really do have to use it with a lot more caution and thoughtfulness than we seem to be deploying mobile technologies so far. The call for standards, for ethics, for responsible technology-using culture has never been more timely. Neil Postman, author of Technopoly, put it well speaking in Denver in 1998. We always pay a price for technology. The greater the technology, the greater the price. There are always winners and losers, and the winners always try to persuade the losers that they are really winners. <laughs> Technological change is not additive, it is ecological, which means it changes everything. Our studies so far suggest that along with Michel Foucault on technology, knowledge and power, not everything is bad, but everything is potentially dangerous. That is why, for the stakeholders in the technological future, each and every one of us, there will always be work to do. Many thanks for your attention this evening. So thank you so much for, for, for your lecture. I picked up on very briefly on the four J's of the lecture. We had the jokes, we had the Jersey street cred, we had Jeopardy, and we had the work of journalism. And I'm glad that we ended on a sort of joke with the Swedish uh, traffic sign because that talk of the growth of bureaucracy and growth of audit, I think, put fear of, uh, in, inside, into everyone. We'll now open the floor for a brief period of questions uh, from the audience. Uh, if you can stick your hand up uh, if you have a question to ask and let us know your name and affiliation. Wait for the uh, stewards with the roving microphone to get to you. I see two. I see one at the back and then I see one in the middle and then a third one over there. It's at the back. It's just coming to you now. Uh, thanks Thank very you very much. much. I... That was a very uh, informative talk. 
Uh, I'm Arushi, and I, I work for Accenture. Um, so you spoke about how um, human beings, there may be some kind of a job loss for human beings. So that's how like human beings could be impacted. But could companies in itself be impacted? And let's say lots of companies shut down. So for instance, uh, if we combine this with the coming up of platforms, which human beings can use to, let's say, you know, doctors, uh, you have WebMD available as a website where humans can go and check out if there are any medical issues and get them solved. So then hospitals don't really need to exist or doctors don't need to exist for providing advice. Similarly, for law firms, uh, a lot of the advice can be available online itself on law tools. Uh, so I was wondering if there's an implication for companies in itself and if they need to work differently altogether. I guess that's me because Leslie couldn't hear the question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think you've asked a very profound question, and what she was asking about was, what are the implications for do we even need companies? Is, did we hear you correctly? That the work would be so different? We did have a little trouble hearing you up here, so we didn't quite... So with the coming up of e-companies... You're good now. Yep. Okay. With the coming up of e-companies, would traditional companies suffer? Because now, uh, earlier, let's say patients would go to doctors to ask for advice if they have a flu. I got you. But right, now they can go. just go online and check and get, you know, a okay. prescription. Okay, I guess I'm going to challenge the term traditional company because I think every company is in a constant state of reinvention and innovation or it won't be here for a very long time. So I think that we're going to find that organizations have to morph, have to embrace this. Um, these sets of technologies, they will develop new services. Some of their service lines will decrease, new ones will emerge. So I, I think we're seeing a world of constant change. Okay. In the white shirt. Sorry for that. Conflict mm -hmm. resolution needed. Um, I'm a financial analyst. I haven't looked up on the website my chances of being replaced by a robot, but I'm hoping to be old enough that I'm looked after one before, by one before I need to worry about that. Uh, my question, in a way, was about that, the, the 13 and 20, that was a great soundbite. Are the 13 new jobs the same people with the same education of the same age, perhaps, as the 20 who lose their jobs? I, is there an easy segue from you know, the people who are doing mainly robotic tasks into the ones who are now watching the robots uh, doing the audit and compliance and so yeah, on. Yeah, no one's done that analysis, and it's a great question, of course. Um, but, what, but people like Martin Ford quite rightly point out how poor we are at uh, allowing that, that process to occur, whereby uh, you know, people get retrained and reskilled and properly educated in, in the sort of jobs that, or work that's going to come up in the future. I mean, we like to think at the LSE we, we run a, a master's in uh, management information systems and digital innovation, that we're preparing the certain, that market segment who's coming to us for, for the jobs that are going to be there in five to ten years. We like to think that. But I don't think that's necessarily true of the whole educational system. And Martin Ford, of course, is talking especially about the U.S. educational system, which seems to be way behind, you might know more about this than I, way behind enabling the, uh, to, the, the process of getting through the, the disruptive period that you're describing. Yeah, um, the other thing, you, you mentioned you were a financial analyst, and that's actually a sweet spot for technologies like IBM's Watson, but it wouldn't replace you. It would probably do risk analysis and help maybe 
um, augment what you're going to suggest to clients and maybe help you do better sales. So most of these technologies are about augmentation rather than um, replacing the human being. Um, I also want to make a point. You, the woman specifically mentioned law. And a book that we wrote two years ago was called The Rise of Legal Services Outsourcing. And it was how technologies could help transform the legal profession. We see some legal firms that completely want to reject this idea, live in a bubble, and still try to charge $250 an hour for a junior lawyer doing e-discovery, those firms are losing business. It's the firms that are embracing the new technologies. We, we studied um, innovative t legal firms doing this, and they are they're in new lines of business services now. So again, I think a lot of it is about adaptation. And I really wanted to make the point that of augmentation, most of these technologies on the cognitive automation side are not going to be replacing human beings, but augmenting them. So even where you see mature Watson adoptions in healthcare, it's not doing the work of the doctor. It's helping, it's helping augment doctors. It's helping them diagnose diseases. It's helping them looking at promising proteins where they can develop the next drug. No doctors are being replaced because of the technology, but being augmented. And, and it's also interesting the de degree to which automation is full. Uh, we're actually... I think I was reading a phrase the other day which I rather liked, which was artificial, artificial intelligence. You know, the notion that you've, you've got artificial intelligence and something is fully automated, but when you look at what is actually happening, you'll discover that, that uh, people are actually doing work that the automation can't do, although ostensibly it's been designed to replace people. So artificial, artificial intelligence, I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the future because I'm not a great believer in the perfectibility of our technologies. There's nothing in our history, and I've been studying this with David Feeney and others and John Hindle uh, for, since the early 1980s when I was working in it, and I've never seen really... Uh, perfectible, perfected technologies uh, except on a very, very small scale. And the acceleration of the development of technologies, the desire to get it out there and get the return on investment doesn't make for a perfect product. Hello. Yep. Um, so my name's Rosie and I'm, a, uh, I'm actually a software engineer. Um, so I built... You know all about perfectibility though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any books. Um, yeah, so I suppose the question I've got is I basically spend my entire day automating processes for other people. So I write code for people. Um, I write languages for people sometimes. I write machine learning algorithms, maybe, if I'm lucky. Um, and I do all that sort of stuff. But I would never have said that it's robotic. Like, in my mind, a robot is a machine. And process automation is process automation with software. So I suppose the question I have is, what's the difference between just process automation, which is what I believe I do every day, and robotic process automation? Well, the good news is that there are people in this room who are sitting on a standard steering committee to sort out the vocabulary <laughs> in the area of robotic process automation. But they haven't seriously met yet, so we haven't got a, a universally agreed um, answer to your question. But you want to... I think the big difference is is that you have to go learn the business process 
right? So somebody's coming, you probably have some users that are explaining to you, this is our process so that you're able to use your IT skills to automate it. The difference with a robotic process automation is that you take the person who understands the business process, you put them through training on how to configure the machines to do it themselves. And that's because, let's, let's take the example of processing insurance claims. We might think of that as low-level work, but in order to get somebody trained to do that independently, it requires six to eight months of training. So to have an IT professional do that automation, do you want to give them that much knowledge transfer, or is it easier to give the claims administrator a couple weeks of training in the tool where they can do the automation themselves? So really the distinguishing feature between business process uh, management solutions that require IT skills and RPA is the ease of use. So just to answer that, so I've built things before that like okay. solve that problem. So like there's things like domain specific languages where you write a program that can interpret human text where people say I want to do this, then this, then that, and when it's done that then do this. And that's the sort of stuff that we build. So I suppose maybe there's a gray area, I don't know. Well, as I understand it, the sort of systems BPMS are getting, getting closer to what robotic process automation does. But I think the distinguishing feature also of uh, robotic process automation is that it's enterprise safe. It, the, the clever bit, it's pretty dumb uh, software in one sense because you're just feeding in 400 decisions that a human being makes and that can be automated. But within the same software is something, is a, a load of, um, of configuration that makes it enterprise safe, i.e. you can use it with any technology. You can, you can just uh, log on and log off to the existing systems and not disturb them in any way. So that's the clever bit in there, and I don't think the sort of things you're describing does that. I guess the other thing I want to say is there is a role for information technology in RPA and cognitive automation technologies. In particular, I can tell you some of the business units that we studied, when they tried to deploy these technologies by just throwing it on some excess capacity on a server, they ran into issues. So the role that technology, information technology functions can really play is, one, vetting the software, I mentioned there's hundreds of products out there. So IT is in a much better position to say whether a piece of this RPA software is compliant or not. So that's a good role for IT. Another thing is deploying and configuring the servers so that you don't have latency issues. That's another role for IT. The scalability, when we're talking about getting to things like 300 software licenses, IT helps with that. So it's really about who's writing the business rules. That's more business operations, and IT becomes more about the underlying infrastructure. Um, oh, one um, more question? I think we've got three. Mm. We can go. We can go. We're okay. 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 <laughs> so there's one at the back, and then a second, and then a third. Simon Bishop, uh, UCL Environmental Economics alumni. Um, my question really is about... Uh, Going, looking at Thomas Piketty and his yeah. work on capital and labor, and he was seeing higher returns um, to capital, increasing inequality. I'm yeah. interested in the distributional question. What, what implications does your, do your findings have for the possibility that labor, by becoming more skilled, um, if you like, in contrast to the Fordist idea yeah. of 
you know, um, de-skilling yeah. and thereby controlling labour through de-skilling, are you likely to see more power coming uh, to labour uh, actually influence, influencing inequality? And just very quickly, Keynes talked about a change in mm. uh, people's working hours. He expected that we'd be working 15 hours a week now um, when he extrapolated into the future productivity. Mm. Are, are we going to see a change in working cultures from a five-day week to a four-day week, given that, they're, as you've said, we're not going to be replacing jobs yeah. quite as fast? Thank you. It's interesting that you, you asked that question, having said Thomas Piketty, because if you read his book, uh, count uh, the number of times he mentions the word automation or technology, and you, you, you won't get to five, I suspect. It's an amazing analysis, yes, you know, very, very encyclopedic in many ways. But the factor of technology is not in the book. It's just quite a staggering achievement. But we find that quite often with economists, actually, that they actually, you know, technology is just another factor of production. Um, So it's interesting that you ask that question, who have to ask that question. I I mean, I'll I'll back off on that answer because I haven't got time, but... um, it's pretty clear that all this will be through the filters of political, economic, and social factors. And that's what dictates inequality or the levels of quality or whether technology is used to augment skills and amplify human strengths or or the attempt is to displace them. Um, And that's the best I can do for the the moment. Don't look at me. (laughs) (laughs) We've got some other questions. Question over here. My question is, uh, Edward Shefflin, uh, Anthropology, UCL. Yeah. Uh, my question is similar to this one. <clears throat> Your discussion of, of, the, uh, of, of the displacement of, of uh, jobs, well, due to um, the augmentation of jobs, I should say, uh, due to the use of, of, of these RPA technologies, uh, that at the same time, when you look... At, you're, it seems to me you are pushing this, these boring jobs and low-skill jobs uh, out of the workplace. And I'm wondering what um, analysis of relationship to income distribution and job quality uh, has been factored into the discussion that you – or the research and analysis that you've just been doing. No, we haven't been doing that, that analysis. Um, we, were, we were studying the central core of the presentation today, and uh, we, we put it in a bigger context and a bigger frame um, when, we got, when we wrote the book. The, the one thing I want to add is when we were doing the Poppy case study, I said we need an anthropologist as a co-author <laughs> because it was like being in this foreign world. So I think you have a great role to play in understanding the implications of this. Final question. Yeah. Make it a good one. Sure. Uh, and uh, My name is Praveen. I'm, uh, I work for Infosys Consulting. And uh, this is a question uh, slightly beyond the limit of the book itself. And it's uh, more to do with uh, the book addresses robotic process automation more as a business and a technology tool for businesses, for management. So it's, it's more in terms of uh, if you look at robotic process automation and compare it with something like a the direction in which this is all headed towards uh, what's called the singularity, right? So that's more of a metaphysical concept. This is more of a physical thing that you can actually touch and feel in the present day. Uh, The question really is, are we underestimating the pace at which we are heading towards something as 
um, as transformative or as final as the singularity uh, at the pace at which technology is progressing and even the uh, underestimating the the impact to society and uh, and people in general are we underestimating the pace of the pace of technological change the pace and uh, and how transformative the end game mm -hmm. appears to be yeah the the usual statement made about that is that we're overestimating the short term impacts and underestimating the long term impacts and my sense is that's right, despite the hype and fear headlines, that we are underestimating long-term impact. But Edgar and I wrote a book, Moving to the Cloud Corporation, that says that the impact's going to be massive by 2025. I, I see two, two, uh, two things, I would say. The accelerationism we, in our book, we say, is, is a danger area here, doing it all too fast uh, without putting in the safeguards. Um, but I would also add, and I don't think we say it in the book, but I'm observing a certain um, um, uh, reluctance to go down that route. It's, it's almost tacit in organizations. You know, we can't keep up and we're not going to. And I see quite a lot of resistance to uh, the speed of the technology adoption in our organizations because they've got enough to get on with. And so I think that's going to be interesting. I think there's a... A, a tacit bottleneck there that no one's really writing about. Okay, so thank you all for some absolutely fantastic questions. I have my speaker notes. My speaker notes give me the robot instruction directed at Leslie and, and Mary. Thank you so much for giving such a wonderful oh, presentation and for, for answering the questions that, uh, that the audience raised. Leslie and Mary will be available for 15 minutes on stage to sign copies of their book, which you can purchase uh, from outside. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank them for their talk in the usual way. Thank you. Oh.